Kyburn Place. Welcome to this edition of Still in the Race, the podcast about running, except for when it's not. So much for wisdom. Two episodes ago, I took the time to give myself a pat on the back for finally gaining some wisdom and maturity and having the presence to cut a run short because I realized that I had asked more of my body than it was capable of giving. For decades, that was considered the cardinal sin. Regardless of the situation, find a way to finish. Shutting down a run and living for another day was part of acknowledging that the seasons of life were changing. Turns out, I proclaimed victory far too early. 40 years of never quitting, regardless of how sick it left me feeling, wasn't overcome by one day of common sense. Unfortunately, my moment of achieving wisdom was little more than an aberration, and I am still the same person that I have always been. To be precise, I would find myself back at that place only a week after proclaiming my victory. It was a little too warm, but still within the reasonable range, and I set out for one of the accidental hill runs that are part of living in the neighborhood that we now call home. I have settled into an out-and-back trek of five miles, It keeps me away from the heavy traffic that many of the area roads carry. I'm trying to learn to scale back my pace on some runs as I continue to build a base. So for the first two miles, I was on cruise control and feeling good. I've been hyper-conscious of my body as I struggled to find my pace throughout the spring, so the ease of the first 15 minutes left me hopeful that I was returning to normal. Another half mile in at the turnaround, I could feel that things were taking a turn for the worse. By the time I reached the three-mile mark, the cold sweat and chills, a sure sign of trouble, made their appearance. At the four-mile mark, I knew that I was in trouble and my body was in full revolt. The problem was, with only one mile remaining, I decided to push through. Or better put, refused to fall back on any of my recently acquired wisdom and pretended that I didn't know how all this was going to end. By the time I reached home, I was cold despite the temperature being over 80, and could feel my stomach turning over. From there, everything went as it always does. For the rest of the evening, I would swing from freezing to overheating. I couldn't stop drinking water, and I could barely eat because my insides were revolting. I woke up twice during the night drenched with sweat and had to change my shirt, and throughout the morning struggled with trying to regulate my temperature. It's an experience that I wish on no one, and it is entirely avoidable. That is, if you have, and can maintain, some common sense. Which apparently, I haven't matured enough to realize. The Return to the Struggle Another earlier proclamation that I made was that I was good for another year as long as I stayed healthy. I had a successful first race and felt as if little had changed from the prior summer. The times aren't what they once were, but my mind is at ease that I hadn't crossed a significant tipping point. Acknowledging, of course, that no one else on the planet cares what my mile time is. However, this year, in fact, is turning out different. 
My pattern is that I try to log enough miles during the winter to maintain a reasonable base. Throughout the spring, I begin ramping up the miles, and by June, I hit my stride for the summer. This year has been different. It's been a struggle. And although I rarely think of my age, at times, it's impossible not to wonder. I am struggling with times. Regardless of the length of the run, I have battled to hold on to the pace that I reached with ease at this time last year. Five miles, which has been a standard length, is suddenly a wall that I crash into. Although runners all have a curious relationship with the weather, the summer heat, which I have always thrived on, has suddenly become my nemesis. I am also well aware that I have changed my training. The most recent advice is centered around fewer hard runs and lowering the miles, and I can't help but wonder if that's not a contributor. I was brought up in a different era. It wasn't so much the no-pain-no-gain approach. It was more akin to doling out physical punishment was essential in any workout. I clearly remember the basketball practice when the coach placed a garbage pail at center court and proclaimed that practice was over when someone threw up in it. Recovering, listening to my body, and resting during injuries are all behaviors that make me uncomfortable. There needs to be some suffering involved. There have been no easy runs this season. The kind of runs when I stretch and cruise through the miles of ease. Instead, I find myself increasingly worried about how I feel even before I get started. And what I've always referred to as battle runs have become more the norm than the exception. It was a few years ago during another difficult stretch when I best captured the different kinds of runs, which all runners have experienced at some point. The four kinds of runs. I have a pre-run ritual that I meticulously follow. However, once I lace up my shoes and head out the front doors of the condo, I lose control, and every trip takes on a personality all its own. And for me, it's the unpredictability of running that I both treasure and fear. They might all have a unique feel, but over the years, I have found that my runs tend to fit into four easily defined buckets. Seven out of ten runs fall into the normal bucket, which, although it continues to slow ever so slightly through the years, is very foreseeable. I lock into a familiar pace, my mile splits falling into a very specific 15-second range that I can churn out with a predictability as if hardwired into my stride. I feel good when I set off, the stride falls with ease, and even as I press, I reach the last mile and the clock reveals that my pace stubbornly remains in its well-defined range. On the positive end of the spectrum, one in ten runs inexplicably breaks all the rules, and I crash through expectations with such ease that my reflex is immediately to slow down and avoid slamming into a wall while still far from home. They are the exceptional runs, and come without reason, and then disappear without reason just as quickly. With splits being fed into my headphones every quarter mile, I adjust my pace to levels more befitting my age and limited abilities, aware that normal at this point in my life is an admirable objective. Regardless, there are 10% of the runs that refuse to be held back as if my body ignores that many decades have slipped into the past. I can always identify them throughout the first mile when regardless of my efforts to slow down, I still settle into a pace that is significantly faster than is reasonable. For reasons that I've never been able to quantify, my legs and lungs decide on their own to pretend that those years haven't passed 
and they hearken to a time when I was a real runner, or at least my version of one. Even though they can't match the highs that come from the exceptional run, the struggle runs are often the most gratifying. They're the reason most running careers die shortly after the New Year's resolution. They are relentlessly hard. Arrive early in the run and stick with you. They are the days when every split is at the low end of normal, but if you can find the grit to push through, focusing on each turn or straightaway and the distance to be conquered, there is a unique sense of satisfaction. The times are never particularly impressive, but generally, I can piece together a run that leaves me with a sense of exhilaration when reaching the last mile and realizing that I'm going to be able to hang on. It's more likely that Father Time is reminding me that the clock is ticking, but I still see it as overcoming the years one more time as I reach the end of the run. Then, there are the battle runs. They often masquerade as struggle runs for the first mile, but as the splits continue to roll in and my body refuses to have any reaction other than to revolt, the battle run reveals itself and rejects any comfort or sense of satisfaction. They occur in one out of ten outings and have nothing to do with running. They are merely a battle of wills playing out inside my mind and body. The first rule of a battle run, or for that matter, any run, is that short of injury, never cut them short just because it's unpleasant. Running is often uncomfortable. Once you find an excuse to shorten a run, you've just opened the trap door to cut them all short on the flimsiest of pretexts. They are better described as the forget-the-time runs, focus on the pain, and make small goals. Focus on the next corner, or a tree up the road 100 yards ahead. Make it to the 6th Street Park entrance, then to the 6th Street Park sign, then to the 6th Street Park exit. There is no way to endure these runs. They must be broken into small bites that can be pieced together until the battle run is mercifully in the rearview mirror. And that's precisely where I found myself. They are the hardest runs to explain. They come on no day's rest. They come on two days rest. They arrive in the morning unless they arrive in the evening. They don't care what I have eaten or how I slept. They have their own agenda and show up when they please. They are punishing both mentally and physically, but they are also a natural part of the process. I never feel good when I finish these runs, but I know that every other runner encounters the same days. It is as if the running gods toss in unscheduled days to make sure that we are still committed. They are testing our commitment to pursuing an activity that most from the outside can never relate to. And on this day, I understand why. I will have another day like this, but it won't be tomorrow. So I set up my running shoes for another day. Someday I will listen, but probably not. My wife is telling me that I need to pull back, act my age. More accurately, she tells me not to be stupid, which I need to hear on occasion. It's part of our decades-long relationship where we grew up together and now we are growing older together. I know that I should listen to her, and she knows I won't. It's a combination that frequently leads to her being right more often than I would like to admit. Lunch and Bodily Fluids My wife is one of those people that brings a lot of rules and expectations along with her. To make it even more of a challenge, at least to me, they seem to be fluid, arriving and evaporating as she deems appropriate. However, that doesn't alter her absolute belief in every one of them. And to keep everyone on their toes, she is always fully prepared to apply them at the time and place of her choosing. Even though I've never been able to distinguish where one rule ends and another starts, it may be in the other parent 
much easier than I deserved, because I rarely was on the front line of establishing discipline in our house. It provided me with the opportunity to build relationships with my children that were much broader and deeper than most parents get to enjoy, and for that, I am eternally grateful for her rules. Everyone in the family understood that even the rules that didn't make any sense at first had a way of becoming crystal clear when challenged. All they needed was a little time and perspective to come into focus. No one in the family had to wonder where the lines were, and you never had to guess when you had crossed one. The kids had them cataloged, and even if I was frequently unsure and felt like I was one step behind, they saw them as clearly as the lines on a highway. There were not any gray areas. You were either on the right side of the line or the wrong side of the line, and there were always consequences for making the wrong decision. As we moved on in life, the rules became fewer as the children left the house one by one and began wandering the globe in search of their own paths. But that didn't mean that back at the house, there weren't plenty still silently lurking, just under the surface, patiently waiting for their moment. I assumed that rather than being life-altering in nature, like those regularly called on while we raised kids, those remaining were more akin to a personality quirk. And although fewer in number, I was well aware that they were no more flexible. That's why I felt uneasy early one morning when I couldn't find anything to pack my lunch into, so I grabbed one of her insulated bags out of the laundry room and headed to the kitchen. The array of bags hanging on the wall were one of the few things that she was still very possessive about, and even though I knew that she had long since left for work, I couldn't fight the pull of her presence as I found myself glancing over my shoulder as I pulled one off the hook. We frequently eat out in the evening, and as self-confessed foodies, we have always tried to rationalize that it all balanced out if we carried our lunches as often as possible. Surely, she would not notice one bag gone from its proper place for a single day. After all, she had a pile of them behind the door and was already on her way to work for the day. Clearly, she had no purpose for that particular bag on that particular day. At least that's what I told myself. The jealousy with which she guarded her lunch bags was just another enduring quirk. But that didn't stop me from hoping that I arrived home before her that evening so I could have put it back in its rightful place unnoticed. I had even taken note of the angle that it rested to ensure that I properly put it back in place. Not that I wasn't capable of standing up for myself. There was just no reason to avoid an unnecessary confrontation. Or so I convinced myself at the moment. I tossed my lunch bag and headed out for another day, pretending that I was perfectly comfortable with my decision. Most days... I arrived home before her, but that evening I was running late and she beat me to the condo. I had feared the possibility all day, to the point that it never left the back of my mind. As I opened the door, I saw her eyes go straight to the bag. I tried to remind myself that I am a grown man who had simply borrowed one of the many unused bags for the day, but I suddenly felt myself digging in like one of the children, prepared to do battle over what I thought was an unreasonable position. It was hard to defend why I took that path, based on my children's history of complete failure when taking the same tactic. But that's where I was. And to my surprise, she just looked at me and stared, then turned away with more look of humor than anger. Did you put your lunch in that bag? It bothered me that she didn't seem upset, but I found myself completely off balance, and it felt a lot more like a statement than a question, which is always disconcerting. I did. I wasn't going to get defensive just because she had established the obvious. It's worth noting at this point that my wife is a surgical nurse, one of those jobs that I would never want to do, so I'm thankful that someone does. There was no reason for her profession of choice to validate her rule that I never use her lunch bags. 
those two facts of life were completely unrelated, at least on the surface, it appeared that way. However, as I mentioned, her rules have a peculiar way of circling back on you from unexpected angles to slam home a point. I often felt, and still feel, like the universe is somehow on her side, which seems completely unfair, even as I recognize that it's largely proven to be in my best interest. That's one of the bags that I use for my shoes in case I get any bodily fluids on them at work. Her tone failed to reveal any horror or laughter, either of which would have been appropriate at that moment. She simply stared at me, as if wondering why I had intentionally put myself on the wrong side of what was a very clear line put in place for what now seemed very good reasons. That's why I always leave them separate from the others. That's not the kind of thing you want to track back into the house. There was no need to go into any unnecessary technical medical detail. Words weren't necessary to point out the obvious, that if you didn't want bodily fluids on your floor, you probably didn't want them on your lunch. I looked onto the bag, placed it back in the laundry room, and washed my hands. She never mentioned it again. She didn't need to. Her bags were her bags for a good reason. And another rule without any logical foundation revealed itself as the very definition of logical, which in equal measure was both disturbing and reassuring. I really should listen to her more often. Thanks for stopping by this edition of Still in the Race. If you would rather read than listen, much of this content, along with other odd thoughts and observations, find their way to stillintherace.com. Production and editing are care of Trey Jones. You can find him at treyjoneswriter.com. Additional editing and artwork, Astrid Burke. You can find them both at babyfeverpodcast.com. I look forward to next time when I hope to have something to say. But don't count on it.